Greetings and welcome to the Animal Wellness Podcast. Hi, I'm your host, Joseph Grove. On this show, we talk about animals from the perspective of people who care about them and have the ability to improve their lives by influencing laws, regulations, consumer behavior, and more. To stay up to date with all of our activity, to sign up for our newsletters, and to find out where our social media channels are, you can visit animalwellnessaction.org. Now, I'll tell you, we have a sister organization, the Center for a Humane Economy, the Center for a Humane Economy.org, that focuses specifically on how to change business and consumer activity. And I highlight that because the focus of this show very much centers around a consumer campaign uh, that uh, will will save the lives of some critically endangered orcas. And, and you'll be fascinated to learn some of the things I've learned in doing research for this show. While you're at either site, be sure to sign up for our news alerts. And then also, because we are nonprofits, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you to consider donating. We run a lean, mean machine. Your advocacy dollars are put right on the road. Uh, Animal Wellness Action, we focus a lot on legislators and laws, regulations. As I mentioned, the center, more on consumer and business. Both need your help. If you would, when you go to those websites, consider signing up to be a monthly sustainer at any amount. I would certainly appreciate it, and I know all of all of our team would. So today we are talking about orcas, and they, gosh, uh, they are really one of the most mesmerizing animals, I think, out there, right? I mean, ev- they are so iconic. You show a picture of an orca to, to any five-year-old or older, I guarantee you that child is going to know what an orca is. The thing is, though, a wide range of man-made and environmental threats have endangered the southern resident orca, thinning the population in the Pacific Northwest to only 73. Today, they are looking at extinction. The urgency of the orca's plight cannot be overstated. While many agencies and organizations are working to save our orca through scientific research, mitigation programs, public policy initiatives, and political action, these efforts have fallen short and the orcas simply cannot wait. The show is about how each of us can help make a difference. On the ground in the state of Washington is Emma Helverson. She is the executive director of the Wild Fish Conservancy. Born and raised on the East Coast, Emma was first introduced to the beauty of wild fish while conducting field research in the backcountry of Alaska with the Aquatic Restoration and Research Institute. She went on to do a bunch of other work for animals across the country, uh, ending up as the membership coordinator for Vermont Public Interest Research Group's 40,000 members before heading back out to Washington in her current role. Uh, Joe Gatos is here. He is the science director uh, with the CDOC Society. Joe, before we go any further, tell us what the CDOC Society is. Yeah, sure, sure, Joseph. We're, we're a marine conservation group, uh, science-based marine conservation group. So we fund and conduct science and then work to get that science into policy and into action. And our focus is really on the Salish Sea. We're we're programmed out of the vet school at UC Davis, which is kind of strange for a lot of people, but we're interested in wildlife health and population health, and obviously the health of the Southern resident orcas, and that's why we're here today. All right, okay, very good. And so Emma, let me go to you first. Why don't you start us off with a high view of the Southern resident orca, what's going on in the state, 
from a grassroots perspective to help this dwindling population? And then Joe can tell us a little bit uh, about the animals themselves and what they're facing. Sure. And I just want to thank you for the time today and really thank you for focusing on this issue. Um, as, as you kind of shared in your opener, um, the Southern resident killer whales here in Washington state and throughout their range, which is really Monterey Bay in California, all the way up to just outside of Southeast Alaska, um, are just a, a iconic, critically loved species, um, as well as their prey source, which we know that killer whales are, are Chinook, uh, these, this specific population of the Southern residents are Chinook specialists. So they, they feed 80 to 90% on Chinook salmon or King salmon. And um, salmon from rivers up and down the coast throughout that broad range that I that I described. And so, what we've seen is that due primarily to lack of available prey, lack of of healthy chinook, um, this southern resident population is in a precipitous decline. And uh, scientists are really predicting that if if we don't change course, this population uh, could could become extinct in in only a few decades. And so the, the community here in Washington, as well as in British Columbia and, and in California, have really come together um, in a desperate effort to, to save these species. And um, you really can't, you know, you might be wondering, why is a wild fish group so concerned about, you know, killer whales? But, you know, because of this very intricate connection, um, killer whales have co-evolved with Chinook salmon over millions of years. And so we really can't save killer whales unless we are doing everything we can to save Chinook salmon. And unfortunately, when we look at rivers really from California all the way to Alaska, um, Chinook salmon are in really precipitous decline uh, with very few exceptions. And so the fact that we have an apex predator starving to death really shows that we have a big Chinook problem. And so at least the way our organization has really been working um, alongside killer whale scientists is, is to look for opportunities to protect and restore um, not just the abundance of Chinook, um, but also the size of Chinook, uh, because we know that Chinook have, have also decreased in size precipitously since the 100-pound Chinook killer whales evolved to eat. Um, today, we only have Chinook that are about 10 pounds on average. Um, and so um, also restoring these larger life histories and, and the diversity of wild Chinook is, is another huge um, way that, that we're working um, with, with the public. Emma, thank you for for all that. Uh, Jennifer brought to our organization the Swear Off King Salmon campaign. You were just telling us about how the King Salmon or uh, Chinook Salmon, the populations are smaller in number, but also smaller in size. Talk about the Swear Off King Salmon campaign that you and Jennifer have been involved with. How's that going? Yeah, one of the ways that we've really been you know, when we think about this lack of available prey for Chinook, uh, of Chinook salmon for southern resident killer whales, um, it's it's pretty obvious that not the only place, but one of the places we need to look is at our commercial fisheries that are also harvesting Chinook salmon in in competition with with these with these whales. And we've really looked to see how do our fisheries plans, all the way from California to BC and Alaska, how do they consider the needs of killer whales? And unfortunately, what we often see is, is that they really don't. When, when we're splitting up the pie of who gets what fish where, um, killer whales are left out of that pie. And so we have really been working with other scientists and advocates to look for opportunities to really influence management to um, consider the needs of killer whales. And so when Jennifer approached us um, to ask kind of for a scientific perspective on this swear off kings uh, campaign, she was looking for what what are ways that um, 
consumers can get involved because what we see is that it can be really confusing for consumers who want to make a really good choice to understand what those sustainable choices are when it comes to purchasing salmon. And um, I'll talk a little bit later about a specific uh, fishery that we have been uh, investigating that we believe is having a significant harm on southern resident killer whale, killer whale recovery, um, which is one that is is currently certified by certifiers. And so um, this swear off king campaign um, is really based on this idea that that if you're a consumer and you are looking for opportunities to take action to protect killer whales, um, make a different choice and um, don't take a Chinook away from, from a killer whale. And so this is, um, you know, I will say our, our organization does also work on opportunities to develop uh, sustainable fisheries and sustainable uh, fishing techniques that will allow us to have sustainable Chinook fisheries into the future. Um, so we don't believe um, we can't have Chinook, uh, that we shouldn't be eating Chinook at all, but we really need to rethink the way that we're fishing today because unfortunately under the existing paradigm, um, our fisheries really aren't sustainable when it comes to um, the underlying species that um, that are affected by those fishing practices. And so I think that um, this campaign is is a great way for the public to, to better understand these these issues and the way that harvest is impacting killer whale recovery. Now, this is a, a national show, right? So, in fact, we're global, which just means that anywhere you have Internet, you can hear us. Now, so, you know, I live in Kentucky. Are there places around me that that serve these these salmon? I mean, am I able to make a difference were I to order salmon but not order this salmon? Sure, and yeah, maybe to explain for an audience that are, are less familiar with the ecology of salmon, one one of the tricky parts of the way that we harvest salmon today is is that we harvest salmon primarily in the ocean, or at least Chinook are primarily harvested in the ocean in the Pacific Northwest. Not entirely, but but most of the biggest fisheries occur in the ocean. And so because of the way that salmon, um, the ecology of salmon, they, they, are rear, they are born in rivers and then they out migrate into the ocean um, to feed and grow. And that's why salmon are able to grow to these amazing sizes and specifically Chinook are able to grow, which are king salmon. Chinook are, are the largest salmon species. And so when you are fishing in the ocean, you have salmon from Oregon, uh, Washington, British Columbia, Alaska, and they're all mixing together in what we would call mixed stocked ocean fisheries and, and really in the rearing habitat or the nursery for these fish. And so when you are fishing in the ocean, um, there's no way to know what you're fishing on. And so you could be being sold a fish that was caught in Alaska. It's a sustainably certified Alaskan Chinook, but that could be an, a threatened Chinook from the Snake River, which is you know not meeting its recovery goals in Washington and is considered in crisis. And so I think that's where it, it can be confusing for consumers, but um, when you're fishing in the ocean, there, there is no way to protect your weakest stocks. And um, that's a huge way that um, we're intercepting Chinook midway through their migration and not allowing them to return to spawning grounds. Um, we're harvesting them in some cases before killer whales have the opportunity to feed. Um, and we also see that, uh, I don't want to dive too far into it, but, but the way that we fish in the ocean um, can also impact the size of Chinook um, because those Chinook that would stay in the ocean the longest and are the oldest are the most likely to be harvested. And so we have what we would call as scientists an age overfishing effect in which you're only allowing your smaller, younger Chinook to return to their rivers of origin um, and obviously, not just for, for killer whales that need larger and older Chinook, 
Um, we know with climate change, we need to be doing everything we can to be increasing the diversity of, of wild salmon. So, so those are just a few ways that ocean fishing is really problematic and, and what really drives our concerns about how fisheries interact with killer whale recovery and the recovery of their prey. All right. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, Joe, let, let's turn to you because I have to confess that until this campaign came to us through Jennifer, the idea of there being separate populations like the Southern resident just didn't occur to me, right? I mean, I just think of orcas as this big amorphic species, the route there, um, but that's obviously not the case, right? So tell us a little bit about how orca migrate in the wild and what these Southern resident orca have in common that makes them such. Yeah, re really good question, Joseph. And so orcas are distributed all over the world. We, we see more at the poles, South Pole, North Pole, and not as many at the equator, but they can be in every oceanic body in the world. And, and they're really the, only, the most widely distributed marine mammal around the world. But what we've learned over the last few decades is that each of these groups of orcas is a, its own population. They may have their own language, they may they have their own genetics, they don't breed outside of their group, and they can specialize in prey. And so right here in Washington State, we actually have three different types of orcas. We have ones that eat fish, salmon, the ones we're talking about, the southern residents. They also overlap with another population, the northern residents, who are more up in Alaska, more in, in British Columbia. Now there's another group that eats mammals. So they're eating seals, sea lions, gray whale calves, things like that. And then there's a third group that we see occasionally that actually they eat fish, but they specialize in eating sharks. And so, you know, even though, so we think these animals range all over the place, they must just interbreed like one big population, but they're actually distinct populations, each group. And these Southern residents, we think they may have numbered about 200 at one time and are now down to about 73. So this population was huge at a time, but if you think 200 years ago, we had enough salmon, people talked about walking across the backs of salmon to cross the stream. We don't have that now. You know, it's, the numbers, it depends on the run in the area, but we probably have, you know, four to 6% of the salmon that we used to have 200 years ago before people migrated into this, you know, into this area. And so this is a very unique population if it disappears, we've lost them forever. Uh, we're not going to make a new southern resident killer whale orca population. Very important. Mm -hmm. Now, um, how many, what's the estimate of the number of, of wild orca out there? Help me understand how the southern resident group compares to the overall size of orca population. Yeah, wor worldwide, we think maybe about 50,000 orca around the world. Um, but there are subgroups that can be as small as a southern residence. And so the, the mammal eaters, we call them transients or Biggs killer whales after Michael Biggs, they may, in some groups, may number into several two to three hundred. Uh, some of them, you know, you don't see them all together, but this population interbreeds. The, the northern residents, over 200 animals, and this one is very small, 73, we, we know from genetics a paper just came out recently showing that they're very inbred. And so the, the, 
you know, just a few number of fathers in the group. And that, that in itself is not a problem, but being inbred, sometimes it can affect your immune system, your ability to fight off disease, different things like that. And so as every time the population shrinks, it gets more and more dangerous that, that this population won't be able to come back. It's like if all the, all the, all the viable dating candidates are, are gone, suddenly your cousin looks good to you. Yeah, it's a terrible, hard, hard way to look at it. But if, if that's all that's available, if those are the only ones that speak your language, the only ones that, that you share time with, that, that's, that's what's out there. Um, and, and that can make that population worse. In, in addition to the inbreeding, there's the salmon issue that Emma was just talking about. We have so much less Chinook um, than we had before. Some of them will eat some chum and some coho, but they are really Chinook specialists. And then we've been putting out man-made chemicals for, you know, since World War II or just before that. And these animals are, we think, are some of the most PCB-contaminated animals, marine mammals in the world. So that affects their immune system. They're giving those toxins. The moms give it to their babies, especially if they're firstborn. So that's a big problem. And then the other thing, so it's all these factors that come together the lack of salmon is exacerbated by increased amounts of boat and boat noise. These animals are acoustic. They, they don't see the world, they hear the world. And so when there's a lot of vessel traffic and boats around, they, it makes it more and more difficult for them to find even scarce salmon. So they have this multitudes of issues and it's really gonna take us addressing all of these issues at one time to, to move the target to this 2.3% population growth that we want to see. The, the lack of new births is another major concern. And we see that because many of these females are in such poor body condition, um, we're seeing far fewer births than uh, we would need to be seeing for this population to, to continue. So in addition to kind of the inbreeding conversation, um, and, and my understanding is recent research has shown 69% of births are unsuccessful. And um, the, the hypothesis is because they're, they're the mothers are in such poor body condition because they are not getting enough Chinook because of the toxins that are within their, that are being drawn out of their um, fat reserves. And even when we see these exciting stories about new births, um, many of them are not surviving past one year. And so um, the, the lack of, of new uh, killer whales that are being born and surviving, I, I, correct me if I'm wrong, Joseph, but my understanding is we, would, we should be expecting, you know, five new births a year if, if the population was in a healthy condition. And, and we really haven't seen any, I, I don't, I, I'm not sure. Yeah, it's kind of hard because, you know, imagine, uh, you know, if your dog's pregnant, you know that. If, a, if, a, if an orca is pregnant, it's more difficult. Now, we do have scientists that can fly drones over top of them. And so they can see this pregnancy, maybe even as early as five months. And, they, and their pregnancy may take a year and a half. So they're, they're kind of like, almost like elephants as far as how long they have a baby. The other thing that scientists have been looking at is when they're, they're, you can pick up their feces off the water. You can see it. There's dogs that are trained to smell it. Um, Wild Orca has a program that does this. Then you can look at hormones that are in the feces. And so you can look at something like a progesterone that's in there and say, hey, that animal's pregnant. So we think that from the photogrammetry, from these aerial photos and from the hormones, that there's a lot of these animals that are getting pregnant, then losing their calf or maybe losing it just, you know, early in the first few days before any any scientists or whale watchers observe it. And so people are still dial dialing in the exact number 
you know, they can have a pseudo pregnancy and produce progesterone. But the, the fact of the matter is, Emma's right. They're, we're not seeing the babies that we want to see or that we need to see to get this population. And it's it's a all hands on deck situation right now. It's you know, you don't imagine a person getting cancer treatment. You know, you don't just think about chemotherapy. You, you have to deal with their nutrition. You have to deal with their mental health. All of these different things need to happen at the same time. And that, that's really where we are right now. It's it's a it's go time. Yeah. What's the average life expectancy of such an orca out in the wild? And we think that the males don't live as long as the females. So somewhat like elephants, males will probably live into their into their 40s and then females even into their 60s. We've had older females than that. Um, but but, you know, longevity versus average lifespan are a little bit different. Gotcha. Right. They're not going to have a baby until they're 13 or 14. Right. And then the, the, the males are going to be grown up and look like males when they're 17 or 18. And, and then then the females stop producing babies in their late 40s and 50s. But they're still very important to the population. These old grannies, as far as finding new salmon, taking care of the group. So you can almost imagine them with a similar life structure as people have or as elephants have. Well, you're talking about the the span of um, sexual reproductivity, very similar to to humans. It, it, yeah, yeah, fascinating. And of course, I think most people know that they're really not whales. I mean, they're members of the dolphin uh, family, correct? Which means that uh, they're they're they are mammals. They're incredibly smart too, aren't they? Um, tell us a little bit about how sophisticated the orca is. Yeah. I mean, imagine what's going on right now in off the Iberian Peninsula. You know, are these animals mad at ships? Are they playful or is it a combination of things like that? The, the, you know, scientists didn't used to like to talk about things like play or, or stuff, but we see that, you know, we see fads for a while. These Southern residents would catch a Chinook and they would carry it around on their nose, you know, and, and, and play with it before they would eat it. Um, and then that, that disappears. That, they did that a couple of years ago. You know, that's gone. They're doing something new now. And, and you know, the other things that we see, they almost, the females almost are always prey sharing. They catch a salmon. They could eat the whole thing easily, but they take it over. They share it with their sister, with their aunt, with a, uh, with a relative. And then back in, I think it was 2018, we had one animal, J35 Talequa. She had a baby die and this got international attention. She carried that baby around on her nose for 17 days. There was no other explanation to, than that she was mourning. You know, we see it in chimpanzees. We see it in pilot whales, all these social animals. And during that time, you know, she couldn't dive to catch food. The other animals were feeding her. And it just makes you realize how similar they are to us. You know, the neurotransmitters are the same. The behavior is the same. Of course, they have these same feelings like we do. Right. You know, um, of course, we can we can too aggressively anthropomorphize uh, what we see in animals. But I think the real problem is most people don't go nearly far enough with it. Uh, for many of the reasons you just cited, there are so many anecdotes that really make beyond reasonable protests against the assumption that underneath it all, were built from common stuff and deserve common protections, uh, which is 
why I'm in an, in animal advocacy, and and I'm sure you know much the same reason you two, you two are as as well. So thank you for for all that, Joe. And it's fascinating too that they even seem to have culture, right? You know that they that they seem to like we do identify with with others who think the way they do or act the way they do and bond that way. Yeah, and, they, and we know that they pass information, not just genetically, they pass it behaviorally, right? That's what really this culture is. It was kind of heresy 30 years ago to say that they had culture, but so many papers have come out now showing how information gets passed, not genetically, but from animal to animal. They do have a culture and we kind of owe it to them to, to take care of them. You know, that, that's part of our job in being here. You know, I've been learning a ton about killer whales over the past, uh, you know, since 2018. When you were talking about Tahlequah, that really shot the the this issue. Although killer whales have been listed since 2005 and and facing many of the same problems over that time, that was really when the public really became aware of this. And so I've been learning a ton from killer whale scientists as well. And, and one um, thing that was fascinating to me talking about the social structure was was some of the changes that we're seeing in that social behavior as the condition of the whales um, is becoming more severe. And so I don't know if you could talk more about that, but, but my understanding is some of those social activities like prey sharing or, or playing or getting together in what we would call like super pods, we're not seeing as much of that. My understanding is that it's, it's because the whales are spending so much more time foraging um, so I don't know if you can speak to that at all, but that that was really shocking. To no, me. that's spot on, Emma. And, that, and you know, when food are when food is abundant, these animals would come in, they would feed, they would have big social dynamics. There were three different pods, J, K, and L pod. These are groups that tend to stay together and clump up. You know, the moms have, lead the different groups. And what's been happening over the last, I'd say, fifteen, even twenty years, is that. One, we're seeing them less and less coming in the inland waters of Washington and British Columbia. When they do come in, a lot of times they're very spread out and they're working hard to find food. And scientists that look at the behavior, they're showing they're spending more time looking for food than they used to do a decade or two decades before. When you spend a lot more time, you know, you have this budget, this this energy budget. When you spend a lot of time looking for food, you don't have time to be socializing. And so there were years where people never saw this super pod, all 73 animals coming together. And, and it used to be so common. And they have a greeting ceremony. They all come, they line up, they face each other off at a distance, almost like they're gonna do a dance off or something. And if you put a microphone, hydrophone in the water, you know, they get super noisy and they all just come together like it's a big fiesta or something. It's amazing. And when you see those things start to happen less and less, you think these animals are stressed. You know, they're not doing the things that give them joy, so to speak, or, or, or interacting or socializing. Um, makes, you, makes you think that, you know, we could be doing better taking care of them. Fascinating. You know, um, I was listening to someone talk about how when when early human, you know, primates began to evolve, the 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 propitious advantage we received when we started consuming meat, which is not an argument for carnivorism by any means. But, you know, a lot of primates spend hours a day just chewing their food. And when we were able to devote less energy and time to mastication and digestion, 
that's when culture and productivity and we really took off. So I tie that in too to the human experience, what you just said. I think we can all relate to the fact, you know, you have a busy sing, single mom who's taking care of her kids and trying to find the last morsel of food. She's not going to have time to to socialize and, and, and grow and, and to hear that it's true for animals just as one more small parallel I'm making between the human experience and the non-human experience. Joe, that's great stuff. Uh, you, you, you and Emma ought to be on more shows because I really like this background information. You know, when I think the biggest thing we can do is really on this show and, and everything is just to show these commonalities because, you know, I mean, we see it everywhere in culture now, right? I mean, one human being can look at another human being and immediately otherize him or her. How are we ever going to get to the point where we don't intuitively or instinctively, mistakenly, otherize all animals? It's it's certainly uh, an aspiration, to be sure. But I digress. Uh, Emma, thank you. That was a great question. Joe, you gave a great answer. Take us to the ground level in Washington State, Emma. Uh, Jennifer was telling me that you had a big big win recently. I want to hear about that. But then before we got started, you said there was a caveat to that. So give us the lowdown of what's happening in WA. Sure. And and really, um, you know, you could, you could paint this as a, a story about Washington, but it's really a story about the Pacific Northwest at large, because we know Chinook are, you know, born in rivers and, and going out into the ocean, as I described earlier in the show. And so um, I was kind of talking about some of the concerns that our organization has been researching over the years relative to how do different harvest scenarios, different, you know, these ocean fisheries, how are they, because really what's interesting is many people believe that, you know, we've always fished in the ocean, uh, but it's really been, you know, over the last 150 years that we transitioned away from in-river fisheries where indigenous communities fished for thousands of years in or near rivers of origin when salmon were returning. Um, and it was really only about 150 years ago that we shifted ocean uh, fishing out into the ocean and started chasing fish into their rearing habitat. And so I talked about um, how that seemingly simple transition has had some some big impacts on the ecology of salmon, the size of salmon, on the, the number of salmon that are returning. And one fishery that we've been particularly concerned about is a fishery that, that actually takes place in what we would call the salmon nursery. And so this is a, a food rich area in the ocean just outside of Southeast Alaska, where fish from throughout the coast are traveling from rivers to feed and grow. And um, when you fish in that fishery for 10 months of the year, as, as this fishery has been allowed to do for, for many decades, at the levels that they're harvesting and knowing that these Chinook stocks are the priority prey and, and stocks that are um, critically important for the Southern residents, we had predicted that uh, over time that harvest would really start to have some severe uh, consequences for Chinook recovery and for killer whales. And in 2019, um, we saw, and I guess I should step back and say that this fishery, even though they're fishing outside of Southeast Alaska, the connection to places like Washington is that up to 97% of those Chinook actually originate from rivers in Oregon, Washington, and British Columbia. And only 3% about, uh, give or take, are, are coming from Alaskan rivers. And so that's really confusing, again, to consumers who um, think that fish harvested outside of Alaska are from Alaska, but but it's much more complicated than that. And so... Uh, in 2019, we saw our federal government basically acknowledge that 
yes, in fact, um, this harvest over the last decade and and into the future has has been uh, harvesting at levels that are too high to to allow for the recovery of killer whales and for many Chinook populations. And uh, we know that these populations are um, listed as threatened or endangered under the Endangered Species Act. And so our federal government has a, a responsibility to protect these species from harm. And so seeing that that clear acknowledgement that, that, that this is over harvest, um, we assumed that the government would take actions to reduce that harvest and ensure that those species were, were reaching spawning grounds in high numbers and that the killer whales were, were receiving enough prey. Um, but instead of making those reductions, the government said, we'll just uh, come up with a package of, of mitigation measures and we'll essentially mitigate that harm. And when you have acknowledged harm to species that are threatened or endangered with extinction, the, the burden to prove that that mitigation is, is, will in fact work is very high. And, and when we looked, you know, with our background as a science-based fishery organization at that mitigation, it was very clear to us that it was speculative, it was unproven, um, at the time it was unfunded. And, um, and so we, we questioned in court, um, we asked the court to, in uh, a federal court in Seattle to consider whether or not that mitigation in the eyes of the Endangered Species Act and other environmental laws was likely to, to, to adequately protect these iconic species as we've described. And so in August, um, we had a monumental ruling in the case in which the court ruled overwhelmingly. Um, and, and just to emphasize, you know, we're this small nonprofit in Washington. We're arguing against NOAA Fisheries, our federal fisheries agency, the state of Alaska, the Alaska Trollers Association, the local fishing industry, all arguing different points. And in every single case, the court agreed um, that that this overharvest is harming those species and that that mitigation was not sufficient. So, you know, I'm having a hard trouble and having a hard time imagining what a mitigation effort might be unless it's stop stop overfishing the salmon what were they going to throw like cheeseburgers out to the fish or what what would have been a mitigation strategy well well that's a great question and and i could say you know i'll get to what the mitigation is but what could the mitigation have been um you know one of the violations that the court found was that this mitigation package never went through environmental review and one of the the uh things that that environmental review would have done would have forced the government to consider alternatives. And some of the alternatives that they could have considered were reductions of harvest. Um, and we've seen, for example, in British Columbia, the government uh, compensate fishers to not harvest priority stocks for the Southern resident. Uh, we've seen buyback programs, um, uh, policies where fishing stops as soon as the killer whales are you know, seen in, in certain areas. Um, so those are the, the other types of mitigation that I think we could have seen. Instead, the, the mitigation plan was uh, some habitat restoration in Washington state and um, uh, what they would call a, a prey initiative to use hatchery production to increase Chinook uh, for, uh, to, to feed killer whales. And one of our, our key concerns is that we know that NOAA Fisheries, the same agency that was implementing this mitigation, um, one of the four major causes of the decline of wild salmon are hatcheries. And so there's kind of this paradox where we know hatcheries are one of the major causes of the decline of wild Chinook, uh, but also then using them as a solution to try to feed killer whales. And so many of the killer whale scientists I've talked to are, are really concerned about strategies to use hatcheries um, in part because of the potential impact to our wild stocks 
and what we've seen at the federal level, as well as in Washington, where hatcheries are being used as a tool, um, there's been zero environmental review, which is incredible when we think that we may have one shot at a strategy to save this whale population and to save Chinook coastwide. And, and we are implementing solutions without environmental review at every level. Um, and so essentially the court said, you know, this hatchery mitigation plan, these, uh, as well as the, the package, which included, again, some habitat mitigation, some hatchery mitigation was not sufficient in the eyes of the court and under the Endangered Species Act, and that they did fail to do environmental review. And so um, more recently in March, we had really a, a landmark ruling from the court that said, you know, we, we found that you violated the law. These violations are serious. And so they directed the federal government to go back and correct those violations. And in the interim, the court found that because absent mitigation that's sufficient, this, this fishery is just causing harm to these species and these species can't withstand any harm. Um, we, we, we should be recovering them um, and, and trying to stop their decline, not um, continuing harm. So uh, it was a huge ruling in which they halted that fishery until NOAA can uh, correct their violations. And, and the caveat, um, and, well, before I move on, I should say that this decision is, is enormous, um, not just for, for killer whales. Um, a, it's, it's, this decision would halt the overharvest of the priority prey of the killer whales. It would make immediately more of their prey available. We know these whales have been lacking available prey for since nearly 2005. Um, and it's going to allow Chinook to return in far greater numbers to rivers all, uh, from Oregon all the way through uh, British Columbia, as well as in Alaska. And um, one piece of the story that we that I just want to mention that's taking it a little bit away from the ecological benefits is that we also know that many of these communities in Washington, Oregon, and British Columbia have seen their stocks harvested far from home. And so for decades, um, we have seen reduced fishing opportunity, um, local communities sacrificing their own relationship with salmon while also shouldering the burden of southern resident killer whale and Chinook recovery in their local rivers. And so we really see this as also a, a, a reshuffling of this historical inequity for those communities. Joe, does that sound like all good news? I mean, problem solved? Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's, it's really important to, to, like I said, address, we have to address the salmon thing. What Emma is saying is we can't just manufacture salmon. We can't do the hatcheries. We learned that along. Maybe that's a short term, but we need these really long term things. But to get to the long term, we have to keep the fish alive now so they can back, get back to the rivers. And I think, you know, Emma brings up an important point that just as much as the southern resident orcas need these Chinook, we have so many tribes uh, and First Nations in Washington and British Columbia that also need these salmon. And so we have to do everything to get the salmon to them. Uh, their culture is, is dependent upon the salmon, just like the Southern resident orcas are. So it's, it's an animal welfare issue. And it's also, it's a, it's a, it's a human rights issue really in Washington state and British Columbia. Good answer. So Emma, What's next, right? Um, where Where is this? Is this a done deal? Can we breathe a sigh of relief? Yeah, unfortunately, I think for the Southern residents, we, we can't breathe too soon. We've got to we've got to stay diligent. And in this case, um, you know, of course, and I don't want to diminish, you know, there there clearly is an economic impact to Alaskan communities because of this fishery. 
Um, and, and so the Alaskan uh, fishing industry and the state of Alaska and NOAA fisheries have moved forward to appeal this decision, the lower court's a landmark decision. And so that, that's what we're moving forward. And um, unfortunately, today, there was a, a really, I would argue, just a frankly disappointing decision that is um, unfortunate that it happened during Orca month that um, basically the these the fishing industry is saying, okay, well, you know, the lower court was was saying shut down our fishery. Well, um, NOAA corrects these violations. Um, what, they're basically saying, let's keep this fishery open since this is under appeal. And so throughout the appeal, um, they were arguing that the fishery should remain open. And the primary argument was economic and, and political. And unfortunately, um, we saw today the a decision from that appellate court, it was a, a panel of three judges, and um, they barely, you know, that they made a decision that frankly, I think is disappointing. Um, but they, they said that the economic uh, the potential economic harm to Alaskan communities trumps the harm to endangered orcas and to threatened Chinook. And um, again, I don't, I don't want to be, um, you know, I want to be sensitive to these Alaskan communities. But I think Joe Joseph said it earlier. You know, when we lose killer whales, you can't buy another one. Um, if you lose Chinook, we've lost 10 million years of genetic diversity. And so when you know, we're making that, oh, sorry, you can't see me, but when we're making that um, kind of that comparison, um, that, that just was really shocking to really our attorneys. It was shocking to us. I think it'll be shocking to many people throughout Washington and Oregon who, again, it's, it's easy to see the economic harm that's going to occur in one season to one fishery, but how do you, um, how do you analyze the economic harm that's occurred to these First Nations, tribal nations, local fishers up and down the coast over decades that this harvest has been allowed to occur? And so um, you know, obviously we're, we're, you know, this is just one decision in this appeal. We're going to continue to move forward and we feel confident that, you know, the science and law will continue to guide us forward. But, um, yeah, I think it's just a reminder that, that politics, um, are at play and, um, you know, we just need to continue, uh, doing everything we can to raise awareness about these issues and, um, and, and, you know, we're not giving up. Um, and I think, you know, I'm hopeful that there's, there's still a, a great outcome for killer whales from this lawsuit and i um, really proud to, to be a part of it. All right. Excellent. Joe, I'll go to you for final thoughts. The final thoughts on this, Joseph, is that, you know, th this is an example of a lot of things that are going on in our society where we have been damaging things and not noticing it for a long time. And we want to fix things, but we're also a culture that wants to, you know, take a pill, get something done, get it done in a weekend sort of a thing. These are long-term issues that have been created over time. We need to be in it for the long haul. And the first step, do no harm. We can't keep doing problematic things right now. We need to make long-term investments in habitat and removing chemicals. We need to be cognizant that sometimes we're the problem. It's our boats or our vessels that are out there causing noise or striking uh, whales or things like that. And so we, it's, it's an all hands on deck right now. We need to do everything that we can, stop the harm, and then to start restoring things. And I think we'll make a much more just society and, and that benefits us and benefits our natural world. Um, the time is now. Yeah. Yeah, we, we aren't so good at long-term thinking as a review of almost any issue these days will reinforce. Uh, but thanks to the two of you, it sounds like maybe we're doing a little bit of good for at least a few animals who desperately 
needed and magnificent creatures they are. So, uh, Emma, uh, Emma Helverson and, and Joe Gatos, thank you so much, not only for the work uh, you're doing writ large, but also for taking time out of your schedule uh, to be on the show today. I appreciate it. I wish Jennifer could have been with us. Um, I know she's going to be sorry that she couldn't attend as well. Uh, we want to thank our listeners, too, for tuning into the Animal Wellness Podcast. Do appreciate it. Go to animalwellnessaction.org or centerforahumaneeconomy.org. Sign up for our newsletters. Consider maybe sending us $5, $10 a month, whatever your budget can afford. Stay. Don't order the king salmon, right? That, that's the least you can do there, if nothing else. And um, uh, you can find this show on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or Spotify. We'll be back soon with another episode of the Animal Wellness Podcast. Thank you, Ryan Savell, our producer. I've been your host, Joseph Grove. Mm-hmm.